This is the Sciatica Podcast. I'm Tom Jesson, and today I'm talking to the researcher Daniel Albright about neuroinflammation, and in particular his paper Neuroinflammation of the Spinal Cord and Nerve Roots in Chronic Radicular Pain Patients. So I'm here with Dan Albright. Dan, thank you so much for agreeing to come on and have a conversation. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Tom. And I think we're both in a a similar situation just by coincidence. We're both in California, even though neither of us live here. And we're both at our mother-in-law's house, our respective mother-in-law's house. Um, But you work elsewhere, is that right? So I actually, I do, I do live in Southern California, but I, oh, okay. I work in LA, um, ah, but I'm currently in Ontario, about 40 mm. miles east. Mm. And where do you work at the moment, just so we can kind of get an idea of, of what your sort of uh, in, uh, normal life is like outside of a pandemic? It feels so far away right now. <laughs> but what normal life used to be, um, I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Keck School of Medicine of USC, the University of Southern California in, uh, in LA. Mm-hmm. Where I actually am a, an Alzheimer's researcher. I do neuroimaging currently in Alzheimer's disease, looking at miscible protein, you know, amyloid and tau, and, and aging and dementia. Mm-hmm. But previously, um, you've been in, a bit more involved in pain research. Is that right? Yeah. So I, 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 I try to stay connected to that as well. But for I did a, a postdoctoral fellowship for four years at the Martino Center, which is a sort of imaging division of the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, where I worked with Marco Loggia, and in his lab, so he's a pain expert, and we did a lot of focus primarily on chronic pain disorders, so chronic low back pain, fibromyalgia, knee osteoarthritis, migraine, I think to name, to name a few, go for illness, so there was a, a million, and we were interested in looking at, so, you know, it was kind of the main thrust behind lots of Marco's research was to get an objective measure of pain, which I know everybody in the pain field wants to have. Because you, know, yeah. you, you ask somebody and that's the best you can do really. And one of the ways we tried to do that is that in, again, kind of from the, the background, there were a lot of small animal studies, you know, animal models of pain, and you know, some evidence from post-mortem studies suggesting that there was this strong neuroinflammation, inflammatory aspect of pain. Um, where you had in in the brain these glial cells that were activated. So, um, you know, microglia are kind of the main. When you when you hear about um, the immune cells in the brain, microglia are like the macrophages. They mm. they, they go around phagocytizing you know, tissue that shouldn't be there, pathogenic tissue, and they they you know were, as we studied them more, we realized that they have many different roles. Mm-hmm. And, and astrocytes are the other you know, main glial cells that we were studying. And, you know, based off this, you know, so there's a lot of, of literature um, in these studies where they're looking at models of mainly chronic low back pain, but a couple other chronic pain disorders. And they saw that, you know, these, as they induce the disease, you have these glial cells become activated and release a number of inflammatory factors that are directly linked to when they start seeing pain behaviors. And if you, you know, gave certain types of treatments to block the activation of these cells, you saw uh, an amelioration, attenuation of that pain. You know, mm. So it's directly linking the, the onset and um, 
you know, uh, treatment of the pain to the gluteal activation. And there really, at the time, there weren't any studies in humans in, in chronic pain patients suggesting that, you know, so there were a few studies that, you know, kind of suggested this, people looking at, like, they do blood draws and look at inflammatory cytokine levels, like, you know, leukin 6 uh, tumor necrosis factor alpha, or the ones that you hear a lot about that are elevated in certain pain populations. But, you know, that's, it's more difficult to link that to what's going on in the, in the brain. Yeah. So, um, and it, it, am, am I kind of wandering about right now? I'm just, I'm trying to, okay, <laughs> this, this is good. Okay. Um, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's good to, because um, we're already kind of getting a context of how, how you got into this topic and almost the sense of discovery uh, of, uh, of this. Because it's when I kind of read around it, obviously the concept of inflammation has been around for a, a long time, right? Yeah. But when I read it, I get the impression that uh, the things you're talking about, uh, glial cells, astrocytes, and neuroinflammation seems like a newer much newer concept is that right yeah yeah i think so so i mean you know we've known about this well the thing you know the the glia is latin for glue which you know they thought that neurons were the things in the brain that actually do things and we know that there there are a lot more a little bit more going on and they're not just support cells you know they do astrocytes are are involved in promoting homeostasis and taking up extracellular calcium and all, all these sort of functions, maintaining the blood barrier. But they're the again, the more we the more we know, the more complex the story gets. Mm. And we see that these cells also can become activated and release these inflammatory cells. So one of the, you know, as you say, we've known about inflammation for a long time, and for the vast majority of circumstances, it's a beneficial mechanism. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about neuroinflammation, neuroinflammation too. So it's you know it's promoting homeostasis. So you have you know um, some sort of pathogen gets past the blood membrane, or gets into the brain, or there's like a frank brain injury, like a traumatic brain injury. The you know there are some what are called damps or pants, so damage-associated molecular patterns or pathogen-associated molecular patterns that are detected by immune cells and likely are one of the main cells that do this. Um, and I'm, I'm also not an immunologist, so <laughs> again, the terms of sticking up are somewhat simplified. But they, when they sense these, you know, they start migrating towards the injury, and they will release a series of, you know, inflammatory um, and, you know, sometimes neurotoxic um, or, or just toxic molecules to break up whatever is there. And if there are damaged neurons, to maybe induce apoptosis in those, and then, you know, and then hopefully once the, once the damage is gone once the you know, insult is removed, then they release, they you know, undergo a, um, a phenotypic change and start to release more trophic factors to promote, you know, to, to again, return to homeostasis. So like anti-inflammatory cytokines to clean up what had been there before. And what we think might be happening in the context of some of these chronic pain disorders is that for some reason that switch has never really turned off. Mm-hmm. So they, they're, you know, Whatever the initial insult was, so in the chronic back pain, maybe it starts as a mechanical insult where you have some, you know, uh, herniated disc or, or some frank injury to the peripheral nerve there, that you have an inflammatory response, and if it's genetic or you know, really the, this is one of the big things we don't understand is, yeah. is why it might. Uh, so we have evidence that it doesn't turn off, but we don't really know why it doesn't turn off, and so we mm-hmm. think that you know, these infl- inflammation is just it becomes chronic, and mm-hmm. once you have this. Chronic inflammatory state that you then you start to get some really negative downstream effects. 
mm-hmm. you know, like um, uh, sensitization of the pain pathways. So we think that might be related to why there's, you know, pain sensation and nociception in the absence of an actual, you know, nociceptive stimulus. Mm-hmm. And that, um, I feel like we've, we've kind of dived, I'm going to dive right into the weeds with this question, which I, I almost kind of pictured coming later, but, and then we can kind of loop back and go over some of the basics. Um, but this is kind of one of the things in my head of, of um, with neuroinflammation is I kind of wonder if it's possible or likely, which is two different questions that it can continue in the absence of whatever initially stimulated it. So can it be a, this kind of uh, self-perpetuating process or does it need an ongoing stimulus to, to keep going? That, that's a, a very good and a very tricky question to answer. <laughs> I, I guess the short and, um, and the satisfying answer is that I don't really know. Yeah. You know it, it, this is one of the ongoing research questions. And that I, I, I do think in a sense that it can be self-propagating because you know, we, a lot of these inflammatory factors do participate in kind of feed forward mechanisms. So some of these interleukins that um, can be released by one by a microglia, then active, activate astrocytes to then release more inflammatory cytokines that will you know act on neurons in, in microglia, and then mm-hmm. so it, that that become does become kind of a, a feed forward cycle that can be self perpetuating. At the same time, we don't know that there's not um, you know it, it could be that. It's, so there, there's also um, a, a, another recently coined term called neurogenic neuroinflammation, where it's actually the neuron, uh, neur- neural activity that's driving it. So you know, both factors released from neurons that are, you know, maybe maybe they're acted on by activated microglia. Maybe release some factor that activates the neuron. You know, mm-hmm. become, you know, you have some sort of uh, potentiating like. Uh, long-term potentiation that synthesizes the neuron to release more factors that then further drives inflammation in some of the immune cells. And so there's there's so much communication between these cell types that you know, it's likely just kind of propagating in a, in a, a vicious cycle that um, it's difficult to tease out parts to say that, you know, here, here's one factor that comes in later on. You know, it's to to choose out the temporal course of events is something that's very tricky to do, especially in a human model where Mm -hmm. we lack some of the, you you can't, you know, sample brain tissue from someone and (laughs) you don't have a lot of volunteers to do that for good reason. And it's difficult to do in animal models, you know, for both ethical reasons and for um, just resources. It's to to get, these are, you know, chronic, uh, sometimes chronic, um, processes that take years to, to develop and change and so it's it's a very I think that was kind of a long-winded and, and poor yeah. response to your question but I think it may be a bit of both mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know and, and it's um like I said there's just so much more to learn about it yeah no it's it's a really interesting response and, and because uh as you can probably know it's a similar debate or thing that we wonder about in more clinical circles, because if I have a patient who has a kind of, you know, this ongoing pain, say some sort of nerve pain, and and I can sort of hypothesize in my head that there might be some neuroinflammation in, in this process, the kind of, the, I naturally wonder, well, is there, 
is that self-propagating or is there some sort of peripheral driver like an ongoing injury or something and that kind of not, will change the advice I give to the patient and, and change maybe how um, uh, uh, vigorous the exercises I provide are and all that kind of thing um, but as you say it's kind of it's like a huge leap to know these things in humans generally and an even huger leap to know in an individual person. Um, so I think it was a very good answer to a, a difficult question out the bat. Um, but how about we loop back and um, take a, a little time to uh, actually define what we mean by neuroinflammation? Because I feel like you've already alluded to many factors of it, but if we were to put those together and, and define the, the concept. Sure. So it's 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 a kind of a buzzword. You see a lot in the literature, and there's a lot of different disorders, really across the board, CNS and neurological disorders that are looking at neuroinflammation because it has some aspects in it. And people often mean very different things when they're talking about neuroinflammation. And so we actually have a review paper that we published in 2015, like right after I joined Marco's lab, that I think is a a pretty good but still very simplistic. Mm -hmm. way. So we were actually looking at, at the time of, of ways that were currently available in humans to image inflammation, neuroinflammation. And we broke it down into four different aspects. So in, in broad strokes, it's just, um, you know, we kind of define it as a, a series of cellular and molecular events that are designed to identify um, some sort of insult to the CNS to alleviate that insult and then to return to homeostasis. So that, that encompasses what we were you know, operationally defining neuroinflammation as. So very vague, but, but that kind of covers our bases because it's you know, a lot of different things wrapped up in there. And in this paper, we tried to break it down into four different aspects where um, the first was activation of uh, immunocompetent cells that are resident in the CNS. So by that, um, you know, microglia and astrocytes, um, you know, oligodendrocytes are also important glial cells that, that do have an immune action, but they're are less well characterized as of now. Um, so those are the resident, most of the resident cells in the brain. They're also, you know, depending on, oh, getting out of my phone. So that's, you know, that was the first step. And then the, the second was um, maybe not compromise, but opening of the blood-brain barrier. So that can be, this can occur pathologically, or it can occur, you know, in an acute kind of injury model where the blood-brain barrier opens to allow in um, peripheral immune cells like uh, you have you know, t-helper cells um, macrophages monocytes you know the neutrophils um, all number of cells that are you know we think that the evolutionary purpose is to come in and help deal with this you know maybe it's a, a thing that the resident immune cells can't deal with themselves or it's prolonged and so they, they recruit these cells to the brain um, so then, yeah, the, so the third aspect was the infiltration of these peripheral immune cells. And the fourth was kind of the consequences of neuroinflammation, where you have, um, depending on the disorder, demyelination, um, um, apoptosis, neurodegeneration, so, so death of neurons and, and death of some of the you know, support cells. You know, I say support cells in quotations, but microglian astrocytes and oligodendrocytes. And, um, so that was kind of, again, a simplistic way to paint a picture of these four aspects, but it kind of, you know, we were trying to break it up into more digestible and more, you know, kind of reductionist way to, yeah. which 
that helps direct research towards each of these individual aspects. Mm -hmm. and, and just in terms of a very basic question about where this is occurring, in some papers I saw that they were restricting this to the central nervous system and some papers were happy to extend it across the whole of the nervous system. Does it, does it matter or? Um, it, it does matter in the sense that, I mean, one, one of the biggest things is that when, once you go outside the CNS, you, are, you, know, you don't have the, the blood-brain barrier, the blood-spinal cord barrier. Yeah. So there are, you know, there's, there's a different, um, you know, there are different cell types involved, um, but there's also a lot of commonalities. There's, mm -hmm. a lot, there's lots of, you know, where you, you, you might have, like in, in the, the spinal cord paper that we published, we're, we're looking at this signal. We think that in the, the dorsal ganglia, we're looking at macrophages rather than microglia. Well, we think that you know, they're likely, the roles there are very similar um, in terms of how they deal, how they're involved in the immune response. But um, so, so there's, there are lots of important differences, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but some of the factors I think are also um, overlapping. Okay, okay. And so in terms of the, this process, as you say, it, it, and this is kind of one of the things I was, I was wondering as well, I'm, I'm quite comfortable with the idea that inflammation is a kind of natural, normal thing that is good for you. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the, the same applies to neuroinflammation. It, it's good and would we say that when it becomes bad, and I'm doing the air quotes, you know, bad, it depends on the interpretation of the individual, of course, if it, how it affects our life. Does that depend on the amount and kind of the duration? Um, so if there's particular, if that, this process kind of gets out of hand, uh, so there's too much neuroinflammation, or if it becomes, as you alluded to before, uh, chronic or unregulated, um, is that when it becomes... I guess we could say a clinical entity, something that we'd want to want to get rid of, or or quieten down. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's you know kind of hits on where the this field of research is kind of directing the focus and trying to you know, see when does it become a bad thing, mm -hmm. and trying to identify that kind of switch point where you have where it goes from okay maybe, and, and it could be that. Yeah, I think one of the big research questions is, is, is the underlying insult that the neuroinflammation is trying to resolve, perhaps if that's never actually resolved, mm -hmm. you know, then it's maybe still responding to something that's there, which kind of hits on one of the points from earlier, which could be possible, you know, it's, you know, maybe there's some damage that we're not able to deal with, and that's, so there's still an ongoing insult, or it could be that for whatever other reason, there's, that's, that's the switch that, it is cleared up, and yet, what should be that natural anti-inflammatory response to kind of to to quiet it down um, doesn't actually happen, or isn't as responsive to that, and so that that's something that's still largely unknown. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. That gets at your question. I'm sorry. I, I'm beginning a little off topic. No, I think um, that does kind of get get to the answer, and I think. Um, I'm kind of, I appreciate kind of when you're, you're telling me things that, that, that aren't known yet. I think that's so important because especially clinically, I find there's, there's quite a tendency to um, maybe be a bit overconfident about, about what is known. Um, 
so I think it's really good to kind of delineate where we're we know things and where we're less certain uh, so that kind of people like me don't take things and run with them too much and on that point you mentioned um some of the things that can initiate um and sustain this process so um damps and pumps you mentioned damage associated molecular patterns and pathogen associated um so things like tissue damage um and, you know, pathogens explain themselves um how do you feel about kind of the idea that uh, things like in, environmental factors that might cause stress or the behavior of the individual can those things contribute to that this process of neuroinflammation or does that kind of reside in the unknown uh, box at the moment so in the Venn diagram of known and unknown, I think there's an overlapping portion where that is yeah. largely unknown, but there's a lot of evidence coming out that does suggest that stress and prolonged stress both itself could elicit an, an, inflammatory, an inflammatory reaction is exacerbated by ongoing inflammation, most likely. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's a, I think, a very important point that we're, again, starting to yeah. Um, learn more about this actually. So we had a paper as well where we were looking within, so sorry, a little bit of background first. We know that um, there are a couple studies in human depressed patients. So, you know, people with major depressive disorders um, who, who also showed, so using the same, same tools that we used in Marco's lab, um, so this PET imaging tool to look at activated glial cells in depression. And so there've been a number of papers now suggesting that yes, there is reactivation and prolonged neuroinflammation that's contributing to depressive disorders. Mm -hmm. So we actually um, looked within a cohort of chronic low back pain patients where we know that depression is highly comorbid with chronic pain disorders for um, you know, a number of different reasons, I'm sure. Um, but we also showed that so in, this, um, in this cohort, we also had depressive symptoms that were associated with um, glial activation and you know, neuroinflammation. Mm -hmm. um, in the more frontal and emotional effective regulation, regulatory regions in these patients that were associated with higher depressive symptoms. Mm -hmm. So I think that so, and it, it, a kind of an important distinction to make here is that in the same population where we showed um, in a previous paper, and, and sorry if I'm kind of jumping between papers mm -hmm. that are, um, <laughs> where we, it's one of the first so this was the first study that you know Marco had pretty much done when I joined the lab, and um, one of the first studies in human pain patients showing glue activation in the brain. And so in that study, we saw in chronic low back pain patients a really strong signal in the thalamus. So predominantly in the thalamus, that was very robust. So comparing pairs of pain patients to controls, you saw it elevated in the thalamus in every patient compared to control. Mm. Excuse me. And so we the thinking was that that might be more directly related to the nociceptive somatic symptoms. And whereas in this group of patients with depressive symptoms, we were seeing it much more in this, um, so kind of a, a regionally specific effect where the depressive symptoms were more linked. So there, there was no association between depressive symptoms and the lamic signal, whereas it was more in this, in these frontal, you know, limbic regions that you are, you are more tied towards, um, you know, effective, dysregulation and emotion. Mm. Um, so 
that was kind of a jumping into the question. So I think, you know, stress does not equal depression, but there, I think there's a lot of evidence suggesting that this, you know, chronic stress, um, and that's, sorry, so I'm, I'm there's, there's a lot that I'm thinking yeah. about. Um, because there's, there's so many studies and so many different ways to look at it. So, you know, you think of these chronic stress studies, and lots of times people will look at cortisol levels over time or C reactive protein. There was a paper I was just looking at yesterday, actually. And there's so many different ways to, to measure inflammation. And, um, but, and I think some of the variability that we, we see in some of the results are, are due to these differences, but I think there's a lot of agreement and that these studies you were looking at chronic stress, um, you know, both in, in preclinical models and in, in humans, that it does both itself in, increase, you know, inflammation and, yeah. So I think there's kind of a vicious cycle there as well, mm -hmm. that's suggested by some of the, of the papers that, um, you know, it's whether it's, you know, within a chronic pain population, whether it's you know the stress that's caused directly by having chronic pain in your mm -hmm. daily life that's mm -hmm. preventing you from going about your normal daily behavior. I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. But also that so that you know, stress in itself might cause more inflammation, which could prolong the pain. And yeah. so that's I think that's why in some um, like fibromyalgia, I know it's, it's pretty common to prescribe some of like the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors to deal with some more of the effective symptoms that for a subset of the population does reduce some of the pain and cognitive and effective symptoms but um that's a mixed bag as well yeah that was a, a really nice exploration of the, the middle of the venn diagram <laughs> got a good a good impression there many things that seem to make sense but uh, and, and are theoretically very plausible but as you say difficult to to exactly tease out and put a finger on at times um and one of the the other things I was I was wondering that kind of came up as you, as you were talking uh, is I'm reading about this this idea that neuroinflammation you know we already kind of alluded to the fact that it's a, a natural um, healthy part of um, kind of response to damage pathogens that kind of thing but also that a lot of these cytokines are directly involved in memory uh, and learning. Um, is that fair to say? And I was wondering yeah. if this, uh, I apologize because I'm probably forcing you even further into the middle of the Venn diagram is, I wonder if, if that there's any kind of association between that and the fact that pain has this weird way of going away and then suddenly coming back again, or maybe having a, a latency as well. Sometimes people will get a flare up of pain a few days after something that you think might have triggered it, but you're not sure. Um, can can there be like almost like a, a stamp or memory of neuroinflammation that can flare up over time? So, again, without certainty, I, I do mm. think that so there there is um, a field of thought that, and this is um, I'm, I'm thinking within the context of like. Um, well, for illness, which is, is one of the, has a very similar etiology to fibromyalgia, like widespread pain, fatigue. Um, but one of the, the main hypotheses, or one of the hypotheses for how this pain happens is that the, these 
you know, veterans of the Gulf War were exposed to certain neurotoxins, either that were exposed, you know, during the war or prior to with in preparation and in, in trying to prepare them for that actually primed the the glial cells. So like as you say, in, induce some type of memory where, you know, kind of like a um, like an immune response to a vaccine, whereas you know you're they are more primed to activate when you know, a, a little different because it, it's not responding to you know a specific antibody epitope, but it's you know they are, are more primed to be activated once there is some sort of insult, uh, then it would activate them. Whether that is um, you know it could be like virally induced some infection, um, some injury, traumatic brain injury, um, or whatever the case may be. Um, but yeah, so I think there is, and, and not just in the context of global war illness, but there are there also, you know, thinking for chronic pain disorders that there is some priming of glial cells, so they're more sensitized to become activated. And it, I, I don't know in the context of like a flare-up what the, the time course of that would be. You know, if, if they can be primed and then activated and, and then you know, inhibited again, I, that's unknown. So, um, but but as you say, I think there is. Um, could be some aspect of a, of a, of a memory. And you know, as you alluded to, another difficulty in doing this research and interpreting some of these effects where you see, oh, and there's elevated cytokine levels here. You know, we, within research, we're kind of unfortunately locked into these models of, you know, this, you know, for, for most research, it, it's, it's reductionist. You, you can only look at so many different things, and you know this causes this or this. When in reality, it's there's so many. It, it's actually very frustrating sometimes <laughs> when you're trying to interpret a effect, and you say that this same molecule can have completely opposite actions depending on the context. Mm -hmm. And so it's you know like well, here's my hypothesis based on these results, but I see something that's completely opposite, which also fits with these other results. Yeah. So, um, you know, as you say, a lot of these cytokines do have, you know, can have neurotrophic effects as well, um, and depending on the context and depending on whatever cell line that this researcher looked at. Um, but, you know, our, and I think evolutionarily, you know, we weren't, we didn't evolve for them to kill off all our cells. So they're, they're you know, likely, um, so kind of, kind of a wandering answer, but but I you know to to the point, I, I do think that they're um, are likely involved in, in some of the memory. Whether or not that's involved in in a flare up, I yeah. I, I really can't say. Um, but but certainly could be. Mm. And and glial cells that have quite low turnover rate, right? You kind of just have them. Is that fair to say? So um, that's <laughs> that's another good question. So yeah, so yeah. Um, I you know there's depending on so yeah, I think in normal healthy people without, you know, frank neural inflammation or, you know, with large amounts of glial activation going on, there is, there is low turnover rate for, for microglia and astrocytes. Um, you know, there's some evidence for, and so the, the, the thought that is that, you know, so microglia are yolk sac derived, so they, you know, reside within the CNS, I think for most of our lives. Um, but there's some evidence that, you know, depending on the disorder that you can get a bone marrow derived monocyte migrate into the brain and then differentiate into a microglial cell. 
Um, that's, I think that's still kind of hotly debated in the field, mm-hmm. and I don't want to speak too much to that because yeah. I, I could be could be you know incorrect. But so there is some evidence for that, but I think that w- it, it's in the context of a specific disease. But yeah, as you say, that I think normally there's there's low turnover, and that yeah, we're, we're, we kind of have what we have. Yeah, interesting. Okay, how about we move to the known side of the Venn diagram, of, and oh, I hope so anyway, and. I wonder if you could just explain in in simple terms for people listening the uh well I'll I'll, I'll give a little bit of background in, in case people don't know although this will be part of an email and I'll I'll put the pictures and links on uh, the reason kind of I stumbled across your work is uh, a paper that um some research you did on people with lumbar radiculopathy or lumbar radicular pain um, that showed some of these processes going on in those people. And uh, I often uh, will kind of show some of the images from that when I'm giving talks and things. Um, I wonder if you could give us a bit of uh, background, just kind of the nuts and bolts of what you did with that study and what you found. Absolutely. So um, I do have the paper here at my desktop, just as a reference. Sorry, don't, don't forget everything. So we were working with... Um, so in my lab and in Marco Lodge's lab, we had a collaborator who was a, a pain clinician um, and an anesthesiologist who, or sorry, just a pain specialist, I suppose, but Yizeng, who's also at MGH at the pain clinic there, who really you know, highly accomplished and very knowledgeable clinician. So he was our, our clinical expert and he was, you know, daily involved at the clinic doing lots. Uh, you know, seeing lots of people with lumbar radiculopathy and doing lots of um, epidural spinal injections and those people with, you know, kind of intractable pain and kind of he came to us with this study for the reasoning that, you know, I have these people, you know, we look at the MRI, we do an MRI at the back and they obviously have some, you know, frank mechanical injury, it's, you know, scoliosis or, you know, whatever the case may be. And for some of them, you know, about half and half, they, their back looks exactly the same, but then some respond to the, the spinal injection and others do not. And he really wanted to kind of better understand that. And so that was, I think, his reasoning for coming to us. So we were poised to deal with this issue because we have um, a imaging tool that's, um, so the, our target is called TS. PO. It's the translocator protein, um, 18 kilodaltons. That's the molecular weight of it. And this protein is, uh, we, we use it as an imaging tool to image glial activation based on a lot of preclinical data showing that when you have, so I should say TSPO is a, it's a mitochondrial protein. So, you know, mitochondrial are the, the powerhouses of the cell. <laughs> and they're pretty much everywhere in the body. So, this is it's a pretty ubiquitous protein, but we, so we know this is expressed in a lot of different cell types. Um, but there was a lot of, of data coming from the animal literature showing that when you induce an injury, like a spinal nerve ligation, that's a, that's a commonly used model of, of chronic low back pain, you see TSPO expression increase strongly in just microglia and astrocytes, so it's just these glial subtypes. Whereas, you know, there, there's some basal expression in neurons that's relatively low, but there, but there is there in the endothelial cells that didn't increase. 
So the increases within you know some of these studies, and there's, this is this is also kind of a, a hot um, topic in the in the, the current literature right now. Um, but there have been a number of studies showing uh, across CNS disorders that um, you, whatever the input is, you see it upregulated more strongly in microglia and astrocytes. So that's our reasoning for using this as a molecular marker of glioactivation. And I guess some of that background expression that you'll see in, in, the, in some of the images of the paper, yeah. um, but I'll, I'll get to that in a bit later. And so we had at the Martino Center, it's a really good imaging center, and we had a whole body PET MRI scanner so you could do both um, MRI, so structural um, you know, whole body data and acquiring this PET data at the same time. So for this study, we wanted to, um, we kind of, so the main goal, so, you know, because the, and, and I'm not a clinician at all, so if I'm, if I'm saying anything wrong, please, please correct me. Um, but for the epidural spinal injection, it was, you know, it would identify um, kind of the dorsal root ganglion you know, as it's leaving the spinal cord and inject this corticosterone or, um, or steroid injection um, mm -hmm. right in the surrounding area. And um, so we really wanted to look at the dorsal root ganglia as points of inflammation. Mm -hmm. um, so we thought that if, if so, so most of the patients that E was, was working with had um, unilateral pain. So, you know, pain in, in one or the other leg. Some of them had bilateral pain, but for the most part, it was unilateral. So we, we hypothesized that we would see a stronger inflammatory signal on the side, you know, ipsilateral to pain. And so for the study, we actually imaged the, um, the lumbar um, spinal cord. You know, so we, we tried to caption everybody, the um, neuroferamina, so the you know, intervertebral disc space between um, like L5, S1, L4, L5, L4, L3. Mm. And so we, we got that in everybody. And so depending on, so this was kind of a difficult part of study because we, you know, we dealt with, so you, um, and Dr. Zhang did the, the clinical characterization to kind of look at the dermal tomal pain. So it's like, mm. okay, you know, this, this um, you know, pain symptoms are, are consistent with uh, L4, L5 mm. um, pathology. And so we would use that to direct the area that we were looking at with the PET scan. Yeah, yeah. So we, um, you know, with that in mind, we, you know, had a target region for, you know, which is the side ipsilateral of pain at the dermatomal level consistent with the pain symptoms. Mm -hmm. And then as a, as a reference, so for one of the tricky parts about doing PET imaging in the spinal cord, so for, I, I guess, to kind of back up a little bit, so, um, for PET imaging, the gold standard is um, to acquire arterial plasma data. So you place an, an arterial line, you draw off arterial blood samples because um, the, the radio tracer, so you know, you, you injected a, a radio tracer intravenously that goes into the body, you know, hopefully binds, goes to the area you want to study, binds to your target, mm -hmm. and then you measure the signal coming off of that by your PET scanner. And then um, with you know, a, a brain study, you know, has to cross the blood-brain barrier, and only the ligand that's unbound to plasma protein is able to cross the blood-brain barrier. So by measuring the arterial blood um, tracer concentration, that gives you a measure of, of what's available to enter the brain or enter the spinal cord, the blood spinal cord barrier. Mm. Um, so that's a very quantitative aspect of PET. Mm. Um, there are other measures 
There are many other different quantification um, techniques that are, um, they become simpler and simpler. And because it's difficult to acquire arterial plasma data, um, you, know, you need an anesthesiologist to place the line, it costs money to, to actually correctly process the, the blood data, can be very difficult. Um, so we, we didn't, we were unfortunately didn't have the resources available for this study to acquire that data. So we use um, instead of ratio measure, so that so when I when I talk about target and reference regions, I'm essentially meaning that you know we, we would take the the signal that we got from the target and um, divide it by the signal in the reference. Mm -hmm. So you know if if you think about you know anything above one mm -hmm. means that there's higher um, signal within the target, anything below one is higher signal in the reference. So you know I hypothesized that we would have all ratios above one for the, the side ipsilateral to pain. And then this would also be related to pain symptoms. Um, so that was kind of the, the first part of the study. And we um, indeed saw that um, in the people, so, so it wasn't across the board. So, you know, there wasn't this really nice, so unfortunately, actually, when I, was, when I first started working with this data, um, this is my first time looking at whole body data, um, data I was really kind of disappointed by, you know, I really did, I was really hoping that we would see a really nice mm. source of ganglia focal signal. Yeah. And with that, with the exception of actually one of the, the figures in the paper where we really did see that in one mm. subject, it was really difficult to see just to the naked eye. Mm. And there were sometimes we were like, you know, I think this is something that's elevated, but yeah. um, it, it, was, it was more difficult because, and, and also you see within spinal cord that there's high uptake within the actual vertebrae mm -hmm. um, that we think is that we're not sure what that is, but I, I, I think it might be related to hematopoietic stem cells um, within the, the vertebral body that are up, that are, have high TSO expression, but that's you know not the area that we're interested in. Mm -hmm. um, um, so yeah, so I guess so we we didn't see um, visually or with um, the regional analysis that we did. And everybody where you saw the really strong signal um, epsilateral to pain. Mm. But we, it, it, so it was, it was elevated to an extent that we detected a significant difference. Mm -hmm. So that was more people showed higher inflammatory signal in the um, you know, dorsal ganglia and surrounding regions. So yeah. neurofermal um, tissue, epsilateral to pain. But um, you know, there were people that you didn't see that as well. Mm -hmm. um, and one interesting thing that, before I get to the spinal part, that, that kind of came from that is that so only in the, so the recruitment for the study was also difficult because um, you know, we had a very strict set of exclusion criteria that unfortunately people just for whatever reason didn't fit into. Some people couldn't tolerate lying in a scanner for an hour and a half with, when you have chronic back pain, that's, that's completely understandable. Um, but, um, the recruitment, so the idea was to recruit people who were going to be due for an epidural spinal injection and then even potentially the image before and after. Um, due to a number of complications, we weren't able to do that. But we did have a, a subgroup of participants who got the epidural spinal injection after we did their imaging session. And so this is one of the figures in the paper. And what we actually saw was that the people who had a positive response, so greater than, I think, 30% pain relief to the ESI, um, and that was usually it, it was lasting a couple of, of weeks, maybe, um, 
but initially had, had a, a positive pain response, did show a higher inflammatory signal on the side, the same side as the pain you know, relative to the reference region. And mm -hmm. those people that didn't show a positive response to most of them just, uh, some reported uh, just zero effect. I think it's less mm -hmm. than 30%, but most of them reported no effect whatsoever. It looked like there wasn't an increased inflammatory signal on that side mm -hmm. um, uh, if collateral to pain. And so this was this was a small subgroup. So you know, I want to point that out that you know this this needs to be replicated. But it, it we thought was really cool and does suggest that the people who do respond positively to the epistural spinal injection have this evidence of inflammation. Yeah. And, you know where the the pain in those that don't respond may be uh, you know less um, may have less of an inflammatory component. Maybe mm -hmm. more caused by just that you know frank nerve compression or you know whatever the the case may be. So we thought that was really interesting. Um, that was one of, I think, the clear findings of the study. And we also showed, um, so the, 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 the third part is we wanted to look, um, so the thinking for also, there is one of the, there was a study that came out, I can't remember the date, from Richard Bonatti. It was one of the, the main, um, so the, and I said that the, the paper that we published in back pain patients was the first evidence of flu activation mm -hmm. with a small caveat in that um, this paper from Richard Bonetti, they were actually looking at people with um, nerve transections, so like people with, with amputees um, and, and just where the nerve was cut. And they saw, they did see thalamic glial activation. Um, and so there wasn't a direct tie to pain, but most of those people did experience pain to some extent. Mm -hmm. And so the the thought from that paper was that this glial activation is, so there's some inflammatory response happening peripherally that then spreads centrally you know, through the spinal cord, through the dorsal ganglia and spinal cord, and then travels to you know, the first um, synaptic relay from the spinal cord is the thalamus, mm. so that you have some sort of transsynaptic glial activation, whether it's, um, you know, not, not sure what actually causes that. I mean, that's a big research question, but it could be some, um, we know that glial cells respond to synaptic activity, so whether maybe it's just enhanced um, you know, sensory signals being sent or, or, or something else, we're not sure. Mm -hmm. um, so, but the thinking for this study was that if we have um, inflammation that occurs in the periphery and dorsal ganglion, and then that could spread centrally to the spinal cord, and so that maybe the people with centralized pain, um, you know, have maybe they're also would be more responsive, or maybe they would be less responsive to a peripheral injection because it's already been centralized. So we also looked in the spinal cord of these patients. And so for this, we also had uh, a target and reference region approach where the target region was the spinal cord um, at the level of, um, so it's the spinal cord that, so most, because most of these participants had dermatomal pain between L4 and S1, so the L4S1 um, nerves should enter the spinal cord. You know, it, there's, there's lots of variation you know, in the subject variability, um, but should enter between um, T10 to T12. And so that's the spinal cord at the vertebral level. So we know that the spinal cord you know, is yeah. it's a different length in every person. Yeah. Um, but we looked between, um, sorry, so, sorry, T11 and T12 was our reference region. Um, and as a, so was, was our target region. Um, and for the reference, we used um, a more dorsal region of the cord, um, mm. so T, I think T5 to T, T sorry, sorry, T7 to T, T9. Mm. Um, I should remember this. <laughs> um, 
just because that vent should have more peripheral input from from unaffected areas. That was the thinking. Yeah. Um, and honestly, I, I was I was kind of surprised to see the robust effects that we did because we did see within patients there was a, a strong elevation in signal within that target region relative to the reference region that we didn't see in controls. Mm. So there was it, was it was a smaller number of people who were um, because um, the spinal scan we actually acquired at the end of the study. So some people just couldn't remain in the scanner for that long. Um, but we did see also elevation in the spinal signal. So we did think that um, we, it was likely evidence for some centralization of, of that pain. Mm. And we didn't have the numbers to look at the um, epidural spinal injections, unfortunately, with, with in, in context with the spinal cord. I'm uh, sorry, I keep on saying epidural spinal, epidural steroid injections. Yeah. Um, uh, but um, but uh, you know the evidence of, of spinal inflammation was you know along with our hypothesis that there's some sort of transsynaptic glial activation that's occurring. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that's that's the I think some of the, the key points uh, in the mm -hmm. paper. I don't know if there's any specific other questions you wanted to talk about. No, what a great a great summary. And it, it, as you say, it picks up on the key points. And one of the things that I'm surprised is to say to hear that uh, you were surprised because to find that what you did, um, because it, it is, it depends on your perspective, of course. So I think, and kind of given everything that we've spoken about today, it, it sort of makes physiological sense, does it not, that there would be increased neuroinflammation at the the spinal cord as well? Yes, I think, I think it certainly does. Mm. But you were surprised I mean, by, the, by how stark the signal was, how clear the signal was. Is that, is that... And, and part of my surprise, I, I, sorry, I didn't mean to, to, hopefully I didn't mischaracterize that, but um, just, just again, talking, you know, looking at the images, looking at the images from each patient and not seeing a really like, I, I really expected, well, maybe hoped uh, <laughs> that we would see, you know, you, you really you hypothesize you see a really strong signal within the spinal cord that would correspond to you know, the, the specific input region that you're looking at it. And you really didn't see that um, you know, across the board. So you know, when I say I didn't expect to see that, it was just you know, kind of based on the relatively underwhelming visual mm. visualization. Um, but you know, if you look at the group level, so we, we have you know, a, a paper looking at comparing groups, and it, you know, it does look like there is some mm -hmm. of that you know, signal within the spinal cord of the, of the patients. And you know, it's, uh, the data are what the data are, yeah. something we say, and it, 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 you know, it was strongly increased in the, in the pain patients. And that was the, the next thing I, I wanted to come back to. So is it fair to say at the, the group level, um, these changes are... Uh, significant for want of a better word but that intra individually there were some people for whom it wasn't that impressive and that you couldn't see much yeah yes that, that's, i think it's very very uh interesting yeah. to say particularly for the um the the neural pyramidal results mm. we're looking at the, the drgs there was a lot more variability there um you know it's could be due to lack of sensitivity and you know, it, could, it could be due to just you know, what we think physiologically that you know maybe some of these papers the pain is just not doesn't mm -hmm. is not of an inflammatory nature mm -hmm. which is i think you know potentially one of the reasons there's also you know, there's a lot of caveats when doing these studies and you know maybe the quantification again we didn't do the didn't do a full quantification um and maybe it's there's some motion artifacts you know these people are 
and we, we tried as best we could to correct promotion. Mm. And if they you know, we we you know excluded if someone was was moving where it would completely um, you know it was, it was obvious in, in the images we would exclude for that. But um, and these are also relatively small areas we're looking at. You know, the mm. pyramidal space is not quite large, and the, the sensitivity of a pet camera isn't. Um, it's about you know maybe four and a half millimeters at best you know in, in theory um so actually when we were you know we were looking at the spinal cord one of the questions that he had was like oh can we actually look at you know dorsal you know the dorsal horn activation it's like well the spinal cord can humans is much too small for the yeah. camera to to really tell that apart um so that's, that's some of the so some of the variability that you alluded to yeah there, there's definitely some that we think is physiological in nature, but there's also a number of other factors that could be contributing to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and that, that nicely answers one of the, the questions that I had sort of coming into this as well is um, the natural thing to wonder. And again, it, it kind of goes back to that thing of it, it, it's in the kind of the known circle of the Venn diagram that um, like what physiological processes can be behind pain. So we're talking about neuroinflammation today, but of course you could kind of list them off. Um, you could kind of list 15 different things that might contribute to radicular pain. But then you're very much in the unknown part to say um, the kind of proportionate amount by which each is contributing. And in any individual, um, whether it's even occurring at all, um, so one of the things that someone asked, asked me to ask you actually was, is neuroinflammation an inevitable part of radicular pain or is it that it's kind of maybe more in some people and less in others? And it seems like we've kind of answered that, that question with the caveats, as you say, that it could be due to kind of, um, uh, sensitivity or lack of sensitivity of the, the measurement tools that it seems at least at the very least a very variable factor in people with chronic, we should say chronic more than three months in the paper. Uh, at the very least, it seems like a, a pretty variable factor in people's pain, um, which stands to reason is it's a, it's a very heterogeneous sort of mixed pain condition, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And again, not being an expert, I, in particularly critical, you know, ridiculous pain, um, Yes, it is a mixed bag, and I, I, I don't think it's an inevitability. Um, so, I would think that you're going to have some sort of immune activation involved, whether it's if you have some mechanical compression, I think you would have some immune response. Whether or not that's contributing to chronic pain is a completely different matter that I don't think is inevitable. Um, that that's utter speculation on my part. So. Um, you know, that's, that's one of the also unsatisfactory parts about doing this is that we've had for some of the studies, people reach out to us and say, oh, this is great. You know, let me, I need to come do a PET scan and then you can see if, you know, whether or not they can treat this pain. And it's, we're not at that stage yet. You know, these are, that's, that's the thing, one of the things that really sucks about doing this research is that yeah, these are very important questions to, to ask and, and to get this data. but. And, and it, it lends itself to a line of, of therapeutic development, but it, to, to say it an individual, you know, kind of you know, like the, like the, 
not specialized therapy, but you know, mm -hmm. personalized therapies that are, are really kind of um, hot medicine right now. It's unfortunately we're not there, and you know, there's. I wish we had that 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 one marker that you could do an individual assay and say, okay, well here's here's you know we so because here's well, here's how we'll treat this pain now because we yeah. see that there's this inflammation here. Yeah, and we're not there yet. Absolutely, yeah. But what, to put um, a more optimistic side of things, as I said right at the beginning, is that what research like this does show us is um, it opens up new kind of windows on what could be behind someone's pain. Uh, so it stops us kind of going as a clinician too far down the wrong way. So it stops me from thinking all about, say, just compression um, of a nerve um, it stops me from thinking that it is a completely localized problem. Um, and it might, although this is again, probably speculative based on the data, open up effective ways for me to help treat that person. Um, for example, I might be more inclined to talk about factors like uh, sleep or stress. Um, if we know that inflammation uh, is a potential factor in that individual's pain, so, so it kind of gives me a, a bit a bit more of an idea of, <laughs> in theory, what's happening, and in theory, what might help it. Although similarly, we're, if we're really honest about the data, I don't think it's coming back telling us that we're that good at that yet. Um, but it at least kind of gives us, opens up new opportunities, um, and also helps explain why some patients um, get. Uh, are, are helped by things you wouldn't expect or I was speaking to someone the other day who um, she was a physiotherapist and she has radicular pain thankfully it's kind of easing off now um, she said that obviously there's a really bad flare-up at the beginning and as often happens it kind of eased off and pretty much went away after a few months um, but she said that her pain would uh, actually come back at a very specific time and as a bit of background physiotherapists in England have to do what they call on call um, which is every few weeks you're put on a on a, the on call list and you might get called at 3 a.m to go and do some emergency respiratory care um, even if you don't really feel that confident at respiratory care as many of us don't <laughs> you're, you're kind of on the list so it's a really stressful kind of two days that crops up every few weeks and she says that every time she was on call, her radicular pain would come back. And the, the moment she took off that uniform, the pain would go away. Um, so I kind of, I don't know what I'm trying to explain, but it, just these things start to give us a little bit more insight into why people with pain have these symptoms that frankly are a bit weird. Um, and also, you know, because as you know, naturally the ex explanation is often, well, it's all in your head but it starts to, we start to be able to articulate why it's not and you know, why this is a, um, but anyway, that's my kind of my uh, bit of a, bit of a rambly statement. I think, no, I think, not, it's, sorry, go on. Sorry. I, I, I just want to, I, I, I always like to hear that perspective, you know, from a, a clinical point of view, because that's uh, usually my thinking. And one of the, well, so one satisfying thing that has come out of this is that for some of these studies and, and particularly for like fibromyalgia, which is, a lot of people are like, oh, it's you know, completely you know, somatic, psychosomatic, and 
um, you know, some of the results we had showing glue activation in mm -hmm. the brains of these patients was well, you can point at this and say, look, it's, it's funny because it is in my head, but it's, it's, it's that's a different, you know, there's an, or a natural, you know, organically derived substrate that's cut. It's likely, I don't know what they cause it, but you know, contributing in some way to, to this condition that is not, you know, that kind of points that, well, we can, you know, there probably are ways to treat it. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's, 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 that's my perspective to have. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing you alluded to, and just to kind of cover this, uh, is that the, I can't remember the, certainly in, in the subgroup, of analysis of your study, I think there was nine patients, and I think I'm right in saying about 25 um, people with pain in all. So it's quite a small study, as you said, with um, as all studies have problems with measurement tools that are used. Um, so I wonder what your hunch is, kind of your confidence about the, the generalizability of this or the replicability. Um, do you have any sort of hunch there? Or? Um. I, I I would feel much more comfortable if I did see it replicated. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and so having the you know, I, I looked at these data quite a lot during this analysis and this experiment, and I, I trust the results that we have. That being said, if someone did another experiment showing completely null results or something like that, I, I would not come. I would not. You know, I'm, I wouldn't offhand just dismiss that. You know, it's, mm -hmm. as you know, I strive to be a, a good scientist, and that mm -hmm. any evidence that any new evidence showing, you know, perhaps we got lucky. It, 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 I guess it would be a bit of bad luck if, if yes. we actually thought we saw something that wasn't there. Um, but if it was, you know, some serendipitous thing that for whatever reason the, the data were skewed in this way, if there were enough evidence to convince me of that, then I would say. Sure, but we'll, we'll move on. You know, we we need to address what the issues were, and hopefully that informs how we can better study this going forward. Um, but I, you know, I, I again, you know, I I trust that the the data were handled well. I think that we we worked with a statistician who was very strong in statistical methodology. I think that we, you know, did our due diligence in making sure that these data were um, the best quality they could be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but you know, with the caveat that if it, yeah. if there are five papers that come out showing there are, are no effects, then you know you start to think, well, I there's probably something there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I'm I'm not aware that, and there and if if anyone's out there and listening to this and, and knows of studies that have looked at this afterwards, please you know inform me. But I I don't know that anyone's looked at this um, in a similar way, you know, recently. This came out. Mm, me neither. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was just kind of glancing at the list of some of the things I wanted to cover today, and we've covered them all really nicely. And I think we've, um, you know, we hopefully for people listening, and um, certainly for me, we've kind of got the the core issues of this: what is neuroinflammation, and of course, what did what did you do with your study, and what did you find? And I think we've really nicely covered the. The fringe things of things we kind of know but aren't sure that we know and i'm sure there's plenty of unknown unknowns as well uh, hanging around um so i'm really happy with the, the way things are, the way things have gone and from my point of view i've i've learned quite a lot like you said lots of things that i hadn't heard 
Um, and they've also confirmed some of the things because from, you know, I, I'm reading this stuff and I kind of doubt my own interpretation and um, when you're kind of just reading it off the page, but often you'll say things that I've read and that kind of doubly confirms that I've understood it properly, if, that's, if you see what I mean. So that's been really nice as well. Um, make me more confident when I'm kind of writing this up later and, and teaching others. From your point of view, how do you feel like the conversation has gone? Do you think there's any areas we haven't covered or anything you feel like you wanted to say but haven't? Um, I think that, I think I probably said more than I expected to say. <laughs> and uh, I, I did apologize if my answers were rambly, but it's, this is, I, I'm, I'm happy with this. I, I, I'm, I'm really, it, it makes me feel um, accomplished as a researcher when people look at some of the things that we've done as a, as a resource. And I'm, I'm very, very happy to be speaking with you about this today. And, um, you know, if there are any questions that come up as a result of this, I'm, ha I'm happy to come back and talk to you more about it. Um, I guess maybe just to reemphasize how, how much there is, how many of the, the unknowns there are. And mm -hmm. it's, I, used to, I, I guess I don't want to leave off with a, with a pessimistic point of view. But it, it's, um, it is nice to see that this is now, and I think I may have alluded to this before, but in, in across the board, a number of different neurological disorders that these in, information imaging tools are being used more and more, and people are more interested in looking at more specific tools and better understanding because we're, we're really starting to get a grasp of how nuanced that neuroinformation is and how complicated it is, but, but also how, how involved it is in, in mm -hmm. maintaining health and, and wellness. And um, if I could maybe mention another, what I think is a really cool research topic that I know next to nothing about, but in some talks I've seen recently about the, the gut-brain axis mm -hmm. and how you know there are neurons in the gut that are, are linked to synaptically. To, to the brain and how you know there is evidence that some certain gut bacteria so this uh, in the context of alzheimer's disease so sorry a, a bit of an aside but mm. um might I'll, might have a more inflammatory phenotype that then can contribute to transferring some of this uh i don't know about inflammatory signal or, or to, to the brain that then it really it complicates the picture of you know the, the, the brain and the mind to expand it. And I think that this type of research is super cool. And going forward, I see so many applications for this across the board in terms of disorders and how treatment is not just a pill targeting this receptor, but it's, a, a, I, I think, a, a much more holistic idea of how we can treat ourselves is it's so important and, and we're really starting to realize how how, how good that can be mm, yeah absolutely and it kind of articulates better than i did this idea of the, the idea of not only neuroinflammation but many of the things that we're learning about what underlies pain disorders and other uh, diseases is that it kind of opens up new vistas basically and things that we once thought were quite narrow and and unknown um become more complicated which is frustrating sometimes <laughs> um but also as you say opens up new opportunities and you alluded to something as well there which i think is why 
neuroinflammation is interesting, uh, which is not only that it just sounds cool, by the way, I didn't mention this, but it just this is a really cool word. Um, it must, Thanksgiving, it must be quite satisfying to say, oh, I, I study neuroinflammation. Um, but it sort of transcends a lot of the, the typical boundaries or, or buckets that we divide the body into, um, peripheral and central nervous system and, uh, you know, immune and uh, system and nervous system and everything. And as you say, the brain and the gut. Um, so it's quite exciting. It's really exciting to read about um, from that point of view. Yeah. Hey, Dan, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You've been very generous. Um, and um, I think this will be of, of great value. It's been a great conversation. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll be in touch again in the future. That sounds great. Uh, I, hope, I hope it's been somewhat informative yeah. for, for all your listeners. It's been great. Thank you so much. Uh, Dan Albright, uh, hope we speak again. Thanks, Tom.